Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. As Reggie said, you were just listening to Let's Talk with John Kane and Regan DeLogans. Reggie, I liked how you said that you were, you know, speaking to the masses. Thank you so much for setting this whole thing up and for oh, helping me with all my for. and thanks for helping me with all my tech issues because as you can tell, I'm a very neurotic guy. So thanks so much. No problem. No problem. So the, it's warmer today. It's beautiful outside. This warmer weather has been incredibly enticing. I hope you've had a chance, folks, to get outside and walk around. Uh, obviously, as we head into this weekend, I'm sure many of you are thinking about what you're going to do and how it compares with what you might have done last Memorial Day weekend, how your plans this time are going to be considerably different. It is a different world, and unfortunately, so many of these days seem to be the same. So many of us are looking forward to a three-day weekend when we can relax a little, try to get outside, and still honor social distancing requirements. There's a new survey out today. It shows that people's optimism is, in fact, rising. As a number of states begin to reopen their economies and others plan to open them soon, this survey of our emotional well-being by Gallup shows that our emotional health has been improving. I'm curious if you agree or you disagree with this. Just want to cite some of these statistics that made me feel a little more positive and optimistic today. Although the pandemic still persists, persists, Fewer than half of adults surveyed in our country, 47%, now say they're worried less than they had been before. It dropped from 59% when the last survey took place in late March and early April. Uh, and get this, we're not as bored. I I'm a little surprised at this one because I have been going a little stir-crazy staying inside a lot, but uh, it could be because we're stepping outside more, and that's why our level of boredom is actually – uh, going down. Boredom dipped by five points. It's a little small, but it dipped down to 41%. So say two out of every five people right now um, are feeling bored. And nearly three quarters of us, 72%, uh, are saying that we are happy. So I'm curious if you, uh, if you feel that way, if you're feeling a little more optimistic. It could be that the weather is better right now. It could be that we're seeing that some of the states are relaxing their social distancing uh, requirements. It could be that we're seeing that things are going to uh, reopen. Uh, my local uh, place that I go to has told me I can start coming by for beer and pretzels to pick them up. Uh, pick them up once again. They should be opening any day now. That's my little plug for my local establishment, Espresso 77, here in Jackson Heights. Hey, so if you're thinking about what to do this weekend, maybe easing up on staying indoors, then you'll want to stick around for the second part of today's show. That's when I'll be talking to uh, talking with uh, New York City Parks and Recreation Commissioner Mitchell Silver about Memorial Day weekend. But before I get to him, I'm going to talk with New York City Council member Robert Holden of Queens about the, how the city has been responding to this crisis and the unfortunate impact that this crisis has been having on homelessness in New York City. It's his first time on our show, and I'm glad that he's able to join uh, join us today. So first, let me talk a little about his bio, and then I will bring him on. New York City Council member Robert Holden represents the city's 30th council district that covers Glendale, Middle Village, Ridgewood, Woodhaven, and uh, Woodside. He was born and raised in, I hope I had that right, he will correct me, he was born and raised in Massbeth, and has lived in Middle Village for 45 years. For two and a half decades, served as president of the Juniper Park Civic Association. Also, many people might know him because he was on the Community Board 5 in Queens for three decades and served as its chair for seven years. He's on a number of New York City Council committees. That includes health, general welfare, and parks and recreation, among others. And just briefly, he ran for office in 2017, and when he did, the Times, New York Times, described him as a vocal critic of the mayor's of the mayor and the mayor's homeless policy, and that's going to segue into our conversation today. Council member, welcome to WBAI. It's great, it's to, be great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. First time on WBAI. Anything about your bio you want our listeners to know about that I did not mention? You got most of it. It's a long, it's a long, long, long uh, history of volunteering. Of volunteering. Uh, uh, 
Uh, a lot of it is a blur at this point, but it's really an honor to serve the community all those years. Especially on the community for 30 years. I can't believe it. It's almost a lifetime. And I should note that when you were first elected, you had defeated, I think during that run in 2017, you were the only uh, candidate to beat an incumbent for uh, for a council seat. That was Elizabeth Crowley here in Queens. Right. I think, right. I, I think was, I was. it was difficult that year. Um, and it's real, always difficult to uh, unseat an incumbent, uh, especially in the city council. So that was a, it was quite a feat. And we did it at grassroots, all volunteers. And um, we did it because um, – I had, you know, built up a name in the neighborhood of being outspoken and volunteering, and a lot of people knew me in my district, at least in my area. So, it's, uh, it's that was probably the highlight of my life. And my wife said the same thing. That was the best night of our lives. Just uh, when you upset some, uh, you know, uh, somebody that was entrenched for for nine years, and a uh, Crowley, you know, this was uh, uh, Elizabeth Crowley, you know, the uh, cousin of Joe Crowley. And the, yeah, and the next year, he got defeated by AOC. So, Well, two things. Number one, wouldn't you have really said that the best night of your life was your wedding night? Yeah, but yeah, don't but tell my wife that. I, just, I hope she's not listening. Listen, listen. My, my wife, you know, it's like we, we've been around for a while. So when you don't expect to win, she, she's a, a fatalist. She doesn't really think – she didn't think we were going to win because it's difficult. Let's put it that way. And the odds were the against odds were us. Against and uh, I was hoping, I just wanted to, you know, run a good, you know, campaign and do, a, you know, try to get as many votes as I could and make it respectable. And we pulled it off by uh, 137 votes out of t- over 20,000 votes. So that was a, a squeaker. Uh, that is pressing right now, something you have weighed in on this week. Uh, you've had serious concerns about how the de Blasio administration has handled homelessness issues amid this pandemic. Can you talk a little about how this pandemic has exposed uh, problems within the administration's efforts? Well, there's so many areas, and we saw it, it, you know, came to focus on the subways, where, um, and, you know, you feel bad just seeing all these individuals hunched over on subway cars and sleeping on subways. And in the pandemic, um, it really exposed it to the point where not only was it unsafe for the individuals sleeping in the subway cars, but certainly for the riders, too. Um, so we got to a point where something had to be done. And I, I had called uh, a couple of my colleagues also had called for closing the subways in either a week or two to do a real good cleaning of it and also suggested midnight to five that they close it down uh, at least every night to do it. And we got, I mean, I got chastised by the MTA. They let, you know, they, they call they called it a dumb idea. They, uh, the mayor's office said that it's not possible. Uh, the governor's office criticized us. And then lo and behold, two weeks later, they did it from, but they, they selected 1 AM to 5 AM, which I don't think is enough time, but they did it. But you saw even, when uh, Commissioner Banks, who's the, the uh, commissioner of DHS, Department of Homeless Services, when they got the homeless individuals off the subway, they crowded them into hallways. And you saw that, that photographed in the New York Post and many, many uh, um, outlets of them just crowded into and sleeping in the corridors of, of a shelter. Uh, so there were so many missteps. And that, that's just um, indicative of... Commissioner Banks' reign in, in DHS for six years, the homeless uh, situation, we, we invested billions, and it had gotten so much worse over the last few years, even before the pandemic. So uh, with all the homeless that didn't want to go, I mean, the, the reason why the, the, most of the individuals were sleeping in the subway cars, they didn't want to go to dangerous shelters. The congregate shelters that are sort of dormitory style where there might be 12 to 15 individuals in a room and they're sharing bathrooms and, you know, and facilities and sleeping three feet apart. So this kind of, um, this pandemic did expose, um, the, uh, that the congregate shelters that are really unsafe. So before the pandemic, so yeah, it's, it's a terrible, still a terrible situation. So as we look ahead, 
What would you like to, the, to see the administration do in prioritizing the needs of homelessness in the city? What are some concrete things you think would be workable? Well, I, certainly I think affordable housing and supportive housing, uh, transitional housing, uh, th those are the key. I mean, so every individual deserves their own space, don't you think? I mean, would you want to sleep with 12 strangers in a room um, and – some of them have, you know, and I spoke to a number of homeless individuals who said, you know, I'm in a room with, and they, they, the guy said to me, half of them, you can see, have serious mental illness problems. So I'm sleeping in a room. I don't know if I'm going to get pummeled by just somebody in the middle of the night. And they were complaining about that, that they had, a, that there's always fights. And in fact, the, the shelter that they opened up in my district uh, months ago, uh, within the first couple of months, we had a stabbing. Uh, so... This is not this is not a good formula. These congregate shelters build individual rooms for these uh, uh, people that they can get you know have some privacy. They can have um, some some dignity. They they could have their own space. Everybody wants that. Uh, you don't really want to sleep in a dormitory style uh, shelter where it's dangerous. And that's how the fights break out. And that's why a lot of individuals would rather live on the street, which is very sad. And, can, you know, so much so that you, we're spending billions on these shelters and the only people that are benefiting are the, um, the, the so-called not-for-profits. They're making millions off the misery of the homeless. So I was for smaller faith-based shelters, which I ran on. I said, I have so many empty, uh, you know, convents. I got empty churches or I got empty, uh, um, you know, rectories. Let's let's put them to use. Let's talk to the diocese. Uh, let's talk to the faith-based uh, organizations and see if we could work out smaller shelters. And more, there, there's actually more of a personal um, kind of service. You don't want with 200 or or more individuals uh, in the same facility. You really have want like 30, 40 at the most. Maybe uh, I, I propose you know 15 and 20. Uh, uh, men's shelter, at least in my district, a few of them. We opened up one, which we're supporting. Um, but, you know, the commissioner, Commissioner Banks didn't want to do that. He told me at the time, they're not cost effective. Well, cost effective, you're, spend, you're spending billions now and nobody wants to go in your shelters, really. So how, how would you characterize the job that the Homeless Service Commissioner Stephen Banks has been doing? Well, like I said, um, he's not flexible. Uh, he doesn't tell the truth. Uh, we, you know, I'm hearing that from a lot of colleagues that they're very upset that he tells us one thing. Like I had, for instance, I had some uh, in my district for a year. He strung me along. He said, "Oh, uh, I like your idea." I had some uh, other ideas of where to open up a shelter that I thought would the community would would accept, uh, and the size of some. And he said, "Oh, we'll work together." And he. For a year, he said, okay, you, you had some good ideas. We're going to do it. We just have to wait until, you know, we get all the agencies to sign off that are involved. So he strung me along for a year, for a year. told me it was going to happen, that there's going to be in this location. And the last, you know, the last, the 11th hour pulled the rug out and did what he wanted to do all along. So I, I thought that he wasn't telling the truth. But just, again, you, everybody's got eyes in the city of New York. We see how the homeless situation has gotten worse. With all these billions put in, you know, put into this, it's getting worse. I mean, we had so much money t throwing at uh, the homeless situation, and yet nothing changed. In fact, it got worse. That's that's the you know the measure on how S Stephen Banks and the mayor are doing on the homeless problem. So. We're talking about homelessness, but there are a number of other issues where the mayor has been criticized about his response. I think of how the governor has received largely universal praise for his actions. How would you compare the mayor's response to this pandemic compared with the governor's? Well, I think the governor, uh, at least um, as a personality, uh, I certain people like listening to him. He, uh, he, he actually comforts a lot of people the way he speaks. Um, I personally don't think so, but you know, a lot of people do. Um, uh, but on the other end, the mayor, uh, 
didn't you know he doesn't come across as genuine he um he looks like he wants to take advantage of the situation to push more social uh, of his socialist agenda um the mayor the mayor has that kind of um people mistrust him because he's trying to change the system so much and take advantage of the of a crisis where the governor is trying to we think is trying to solve it although they both made terrible terrible missteps in the beginning that actually cost a lot of people their la- their lives because if you look what happened remember that the mayor wanted to, to shelter in before the governor and, and the governor was saying it's got to be up to me not not the mayor and they were going back and forth and fighting um i think they both were very slow and i think that's why new york city and new york state became the epicenter and it's it's interesting as we think about the uh, news story that was out today in the New York Times, which talked about, you know, if we had sheltered in place a bit earlier, uh, social distancing measures were put into place earlier, how many more lives uh, could have been saved amid this outbreak? This was not specific to New York City or New York State. This was more universal about the country. As you reflect on, on that, you know, and all the other actions that we're seeing our city and state leaders take, you know, one of the key thing, one of the key discussions has been around education. And I believe you also have expressed concerns about how our city Department of Education has responded to this. Talk a little about that. Well, um, so certainly the chancellor, Carranza, and the mayor were very slow in closing the schools. Uh, you saw we were, I think, had so many cases, 400 or so, uh, in the city at the time when they figured, oh, we're going to close the schools finally. Uh, I think that was uh, March 16th or thereabout. And if we would have closed it a week earlier, we could have saved lives. But the mayor, all city council members that I know were, were calling on a week before to close the schools. And you know what the mayor's response was? Oh, we're the, uh, we're, what's going to happen to the first responders uh, children, who's going to watch them? Who's going to take care? Who's going to feed them? Who's going to feed our children that rely on schools to get meals? I mean, are you kidding? Are we fighting a pandemic, or are we, uh, you know, using our schools to feed uh, kids? There's there's other ways to feed kids, and we found a way, didn't we? Um, but he used that excuse. So you're when you, if you're the mayor or the governor. If you're fighting a war, you have to keep your eye on the enemy and not just say, oh, we're not going to fight the enemy this hard because we have to feed you know, our, our, our people. Yeah, you can do both, but it's not one or the other. And that's where the mayor and the governor made mistakes very early on. They were worried about um, being politically correct. They were worrying about, oh, we don't want to scare people. We don't want to panic people. In fact, in even the um, health commissioner was saying early on, go out, you know, early February. It was a pandemic. We, we already knew it. Go out and, you know, go go and go to parades, get, you know, go out to dinner, go to movies, do all this stuff. This, this is from a health commissioner. Uh, so that's why I, did, I, did, I think the administration, especially the de Blasio administration, made so many missteps. And, and the schools especially, uh, even now, the, the schools are like sort of a center where people can go pick up food, but the cafeteria workers are, are, are put in harm's way because people are coming in and the, the cafeteria workers are, are, are there. So you're actually getting people coming in to a location, the school, and if they have the, if they're a carrier uh, of the virus, they could spread it. And they have been spreading it to cafeteria workers. And so People are just walking in, picking up, picking up, uh, rummaging through a bunch of uh, meals. And they're touching a lot of them because it's left by the door. It's called grab and go, except they're touching everything and going, grabbing. And that's not the way to do it. It's not. I mean, if you look at how the city is managing this and how DOE and the chancellor are, are managing this, um, it's disgraceful. We are each day now, it seems there's another hearing regarding the budget. Um, as far as what um, the discussions between the council and the mayor, where do you see the city budget going? What sh- what do you think should happen as far as uh, cuts? Because we're obviously going to be seeing a lot of revenue 
uh, not coming in at this time. So where are you looking to cut uh, or where do you think the administration has been handling this properly or not or inappropriately? Well, the mayor doesn't know how to cut. He doesn't know how to cut at all because uh, he's had, you know, great financial times during his six years. And he kept raising the budget uh, $20 billion. He raised it in his uh, tenure, which is ridiculous. That's more than the budget of most cities. Yet he's raised that. Um, he's added, I, I think, was it 30,000 uh, or um, workers to the, to the workforce, uh, uh, you know, in the city. So he, he's done everything wrong in, in the way of the budget. And then we should have put more money away in the rainy day fund. The uh, the council was responsible for that. We We actually urged him to put more money and that's why we do have some money in reserve but he's even the way he, his budget is is coming across now at um a 89 billion he's still not cutting the right things in fact doe is still putting out these contracts um for third party uh handlers and 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 uh putting out uh, you know billions uh of money into not the classroom, but they're proposing just to have other workers or other uh, contractors come in and run programs, and and they're costing millions and millions of dollars. They should we should focus on the classroom and education, and um, that's I think the first place is um, uh, the DOE. You can you could trim the fat, but there's so many there's other so many places other that they could trim the fat. I mean, there's and so we- many. We've got just a few minutes left. Uh, I talk to all my guests about this uh, because I'm really curious, as much as we talk from a higher level about politics and policy, this is a very personal you know, pandemic that many people that we know uh, have been affected by this. So talk to me a little about how you and your loved ones have been personally affected by this pandemic. Well, we lo- everybody knows, probably everybody in the city knows somebody that's passed and um uh my mom was uh had the covid symptoms she's 96 and she was in assisted living uh i got a call a few weeks ago and they said um you know your mom is very pale and um she has a temperature a low grade temperature and she has trouble breathing so i said oh my god you know and um so the the biggest problem that i couldn't see my mom i still can't I, for two months, so I couldn't visit her in assisted living, and she was then transferred to a hospital, and um, she was on oxygen. Her oxygen level had gone to about 82, which uh, they said she shouldn't be alive at, at that level, and yet she was sitting up and eating and talking, and they couldn't, they couldn't figure out what was going on. And they had to take three tests on the COVID and still all came up negative, and they still are saying she's got all the symptoms. So it's, it, it kind of stumped the doctors, but they've seen this before where a patient will have all the symptoms. And so my, I had, the, I had the, um, the chaplain call me and say a prayer. Uh, I couldn't go and see her. Uh, and I had uh, the doctor telling me, um, does your mom have everything in order? Uh, I had people calling me constantly, you know, preparing me for my mother's, death, which your heart sinks because you can't see her. You can't go in and see her. She's alone. And I get chills. She's still, she, now she, they moved her to a nursing home because they could only do so much in in the hospital. And she's, she's still, um, they're getting, trying to get her off oxygen. Her, the inflammation in her lungs are going down. So that's, uh, um, uh, you know, that's hopeful, but right at the floor above, her longtime friend of 60 years just passed away, and a good friend of our family, too, passed away yesterday. Um, it's so heartbreaking because they're alone. And uh, you can't imagine, like, you just put yourself in that position where you can't see your family and you're, you're on your deathbed and you'll never see them again. Uh, and you can't say goodbye or you can't, you know, see their faces. The only time I would saw, I saw her on uh, FaceTime my mom and I couldn't believe what I saw when I finally saw her after she got out of the hospital. Pale with uh, dark rings around her eyes it was heartbreaking. It still is, but everybody's gone through this. I think that uh, in some way or another, and it's it's a, it's a very tough um, tough time in our lives. Councilman, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. Uh, 
uh, you know, I want our listeners to know where they can go to find out more about you and your work. Uh, can you just tell us where, you know, where, what resources you've got? Uh, and uh, if you don't have the information in front of you, I will relay, because I made sure I wrote it down, the information on your mask giveaway for tomorrow that I could talk about if you'd like. Yeah, I have yeah, it on. I have well, I can, it's very easy. Uh, it's on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Bob Holden NYC. So both on Twitter and Instagram, at Bob Holden NYC. And on Facebook, it's at Bob Holden City Council. And Holden, of course, is H-O-L-D-E-N. But thank you so much. Thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. A pleasure. 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 So for those people who are in Councilman Holden's district, uh, one thing he had pointed out on Twitter was that uh, tomorrow, uh, no, no, yeah, tomorrow, the 22nd, his office is having a free mask giveaway from noon to two in front of his district office. And if you're in uh, his neighborhood, his address is 64-69 Dry Harbor Road. He'll have a table outside where you can go by to receive up to five masks per person while the supply lasts. That's his free mask giveaway tomorrow, Friday, May 22nd from noon till two in front of Bob Holden's district office at 64 Dash 69 Dry Harbor Road here in Queens. You've been listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I was just talking here on Driving Forces with uh, Robert Holden, the New York City Council member. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you on this sunny afternoon for tuning into WBAI, whether you're inside or whether you're walking around listening to us streaming live at WBAI.org. We've been trying to bring you the voices of New Yorkers from all walks of life who've been impacted by COVID-19. So I urge you to go online uh, to WBAI.org and listen to the series that our WBAI correspondent Celeste Katz has put together. Uh, she ta- she's talking to people from all walks of life, uh, and it's been really moving to listen to these pieces. And she recently spoke uh, with a young student, a uh, high school senior. I'm saying young at my age, so I'm trying not to laugh when I say that now. Um, uh, Celeste Katz-Morrison talked with a young student in a program called Breakthrough New York that helps low-income, high-achieving kids get to and through college Uh, about how this uh, teenager is experiencing this moment in time. So, Reggie, let's take a listen to that. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Alicia Joseph. I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I go to the Chapin School on the Upper East Side. Being a senior and knowing that I won't have my senior traditions in the time that I expected is super difficult, but my school has been really on top of making their students feel very safe and reassured that we are going to be celebrated in one way or another. Um, We have a couple of Zoom calls that will celebrate the senior class, and my school is also moving commencement and prom to either August or November. So... I feel really reassured that I will be celebrated in the way that I, um, the way that I feel like I should be celebrated. But at the same time, it's sad that it's not during the time I expected it to be. I expected to be finishing my classes, and I'm also the dance team's vice president. So I think just leading the show was what I was really looking forward to, and just not having that opportunity makes me really sad but also just like graduating with my friends, going to prom, and just making a lot of memories with my teachers and friends. I learned a lot about the power of community. I think during this time and not being around people, I think we have a deeper appreciation for the people in our lives and how strong those relationships truly are. I'm a part of the community-based organization Breakthrough New York. I've been with them since I was in sixth grade. They've been really on top of making sure that their students are well supported. They send out a lot of emails about different resources for students just in case that they don't have a TV provider or internet service or just resources to make sure that they're getting their best education. 
my teachers generally do care about their job and that they actually want to see us succeed and they want us to feel happy in the environment that we're in. So they're putting their best foot forward, even though this is not the best situation to be in. From a friend to friend perspective, I truly value the memories that we have right now. I think when we're in school, we're so caught up with just having a good time with one another and we're not really thinking about like, this is a memory that I will keep with me forever. And I think now that we're in this situation, I fully understand the impact my friends have had on me and the impact I have on my friends. And I think I just have a deeper love for them and I miss them very much. Um, my dad doesn't live with me, so I haven't seen him for a very long time in person. And I just, I have a deeper understanding and appreciation for the family dynamic. Um, I have, I'm spending a lot of time with my mom and I love her so much. I think we grew a lot closer during this time. And my dad, he was affected with um, by Corona. So I think just being affected on a personal level, it just made me appreciate our relationship even more. And I know that we're working super hard to um, make our bond stronger. After I graduate from high school, I think I'm going to spend a lot more time with my family and friends if um, the environment allows. I think after high school, I'm going to focus a lot on what I want to do as a career. I know that I want to work with children. So this summer, if we're allowed to work or allowed to be out with other people more frequently, I think I'm going to um, do an internship in where I can work with children again. I would say hold on to the memories that you have right now. I think it's during this time, just take the time to actually sit down and reflect on all the great memories that you have. And even though things aren't working out the way that you want to, you still have a whole future ahead of you where you can have even better memories with the people that you'll meet in the future. And I understand that it's super hard right now that we all expected that we would be celebrating things together, but we still have that bond that keeps us united. So even though we don't have physical events to go to, we always have those relationships. Alicia Joseph is a high school senior from Brooklyn. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. That was our Celeste Katz Marston, who's been preparing these really moving Coronavirus Diary dispatches over the last few weeks. I encourage you to please go to our website at WBAI.org to check out all of her interviews. And as uh, Alicia had just talked about, you know, uh, she touched on the summer. Uh, people aren't sure what they're going to do this summer. There's a lot of developments. We're not sure, you know, when schools will fully reopen. I saw that the, uh, I believe it was the mayor talked about summer school not being uh, in session. I'm going to double check to see if that was the, go actually that was the governor that was saying summer school won't be happening. Uh, you know, you think about Memorial Day coming up this weekend being the unofficial start of summer before the first official, you know, the formal day, which happens in just a few weeks on uh, on June 20th. Um, you know, for many of us, this was the weekend where we thought we could relax a little. Things will get easier. It's, you know, it's a lighter schedule. We can go outside and barbecue, spend time with friends. But things really, they're going to be different. It's a different world. So as we look ahead to this uh, three-day weekend, uh, I'm going to go to my next guest, Mitchell Silver, who became commissioner of the New York City Department of Parks and Rec uh, back in May 2014. Uh, as parks commissioner, Mitchell Silver oversees the management, planning, and operations of nearly 30,000 acres of parkland, and that includes parks, playgrounds, beaches, uh, marinas, recreation centers, wilderness areas, and other assets within New York City. As one of the nation's most celebrated urban thinkers, the commissioner also uh, is an award-winning planner, and he's the immediate past president of the American Planning Association. This pandemic, as you know, has changed our way of life, including how we gather in public spaces. So, you know, while in the colder, more miserable weather, it was easy to stay indoors, but with the onset of weather, we're looking to our parks and our spa public spaces uh, as, you know, as respites. So we're going to talk about this with my next guest. Commissioner, welcome back to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be back. So as you know, if you can recall from the last time we talked, it was I live across from Travers Park before it reopened, so I have to tell you it's beautiful. You did a great job on Travers Park in Queens. Thank you. So how has the Parks Department been preparing for this weekend? 
Well, we've been preparing for a number of weeks. As you know, Memorial Weekend starts at the beginning of our beach season, and so we worked on several scenarios, and the mayor then gave the go-ahead to open up the beach for walking, for jogging, uh, for fishing, for surfing, uh, but not for swimming. And so we have prepared what that will look like, how our education for social distancing will work. And so we're very pleased that we'll be able to open up the beaches as an open space for the nearby community, but it's going to be different. Clearly no swimming is going to be a change for what we experienced as long as all of us can remember. And, you know, about a week or so ago, I spoke to the head of Greenwood Cemetery about how they needed to adapt very quickly to the surge of people that were visiting amid the pandemic. So what are some of the measures you have had to put in place to ensure that people adhere to social distancing measures in our parks and playgrounds? Sure. Uh, well, first, uh, we wanted to make sure that people understood the importance of parks being opened. Our parks remain open. However, most features within the parks have been closed. Playgrounds, basketball courts, things of that nature, features. So parks are opened. But we also want to make sure that people went out there for short duration, get their solo exercise, walk, run, stroll, sit on the grass for a little bit, and then head home. We started putting up ways where people can understand what social distancing looks like. So we put up well over 300 red signs that said, be this far apart. They've now been replicated all over the country and in fact in some places around the world to show people what six feet looks like. We've also created a Parks Ambassadors program and they're going out to the park, uh, approaching people and educating them about the importance of social distancing, but also giving them free face coverings so that they can protect themselves and others. And we came up with a number of different programs. We have Parks at Home. If people are uncomfortable going out or can't go out, they can experience Parks at Home. It's a wonderful series with activities for kids to adults. There's meditation. There's tours to our parks. So we want to make sure that people could experience their parks, and we worked a lot to make sure we're ready, particularly for this weekend, as well as the rest of the summer. A few weeks ago, I had on the NYPD commissioner, and he talked about uh, his workforce, uh, the number of officers who had tested positive and those who'd been out sick. How has the pandemic affected the Parks Department? Well, it affected us as well, but from the very beginning, we prioritized safety first and made sure all of our park workers had the proper PPEs or protective uh, personnel equipment. Uh, to date, we've had 122 of our parks employees test positive. That's out of a 6,000 person workforce. And out of those 122, 103 have returned to work. 19 are still recovering. Unfortunately and sadly, we did have three deaths that were COVID related. So we're very pleased very early on, we focused on the safety of our employees. We gave them daily updates and reminders. I went out to the field to ensure people heard the message from me directly and made sure they were protecting their vehicles in the field and when they were cleaning our buildings. When when you look at your department's experience, how do we in New York City compare with what other major cities in the country are doing in, in regards to parks and playgrounds uh, amid the pandemic? What are some of the best practices you've been seeing? Well, for one, uh, I'm part of an urban leaders program through the National Recreation and Park Association. Well, we get on a call every Friday just to compare notes. And so we're pretty consistent across the board. So we have the numbers, what is open of some of the cities that are surveyed and what remains closed. And so we're pretty much consistent with what we're hearing. 92% nationwide, the trails are open, 79% of the local parks, 73% of the regional parks. But across the board, we're pretty consistent on what is closed. Playgrounds, 92%. Drinking fountains, 74%. Basketball courts, 71%. So those are the things that we're monitoring nationwide to see what our colleagues are doing. In terms of best practices, everyone's following the lead of New York with their park ambassadors. We've now trained, I'm guessing, about a dozen other cities that really respected our program and want to learn more about it. And then our six-foot sign, we actually send it out, all of our signs we're putting in our parks that people wanted to adapt to their city. So some of the best practices, it's the messaging. It's educating about social distancing and having the signage to communicate to the public. So that's what we share with you about what's been closed uh, and remains closed, what has now been opened up, and then some of those best practices that people are using. So earlier today, Mayor de Blasio uh, talked about the fact that nearly one in four New Yorkers don't have enough food at this time. 
the Parks Department has been assisting with get food distribution sites. Can you talk a little about them? Sure. Uh, from the very beginning, um, we were able to redeploy our recreation staff, and so we set up several food distribution sites called Get Food. And at this point, uh, we have some in the Bronx, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. Our recreation staff actually run these eight sites, and to date, they were able to deliver more than 14 million meals. We work with uh, the TLC and other agencies, but this is something we're very proud of because a lot of New Yorkers that don't have access to food or can't afford during this time. And so 14 million meals have been served out of these eight rec centers that were led by our park staff. And you, you mentioned a little earlier that while parks are open, there are certain amenities, the portions of them that are not. So, for instance, playgrounds and athletic courts, any sense on when you envision they may reopen? We don't have a timeline for reopening to share at this point, but we are talking to our public health professional experts to determine when it could be done safely. So no action will be taken until we know it's safe. And as I shared with you, if you look across the country, 92% of the playgrounds are closed. Basketball court, 71%. These are some elements that are iconic to New York. In fact, the first municipal playground was Seward Park, was built here in, uh, in the United States, right here in the Lower East Side. But we want to make sure it's safe and we will not move forward until we're able to get that confidence and assurance that we can open them up and it'll be no harm to the public. So with the warmer weather, obviously people want to get out, they want to exercise. Talk a little about some of your recommendations. You know, where would you recommend people go to this weekend? Well, I don't want to create any hotspots about where people should go, but all the parks that have remained open, our large regional parks, will still be open, and now our beaches will be open for walking, strolling. So I don't want to make any clear recommendation. We want to make sure people don't swim. They certainly don't barbecue in our parks. Uh, but we do ask people to do their solo exercise, run, walk. That's a great way to stay fit. And because we have so many drinking fountains, and in fact, all of them are not open, we're encouraging people, please bring water so you stay hydrated this weekend. It's not going to be hot, but you still want to hydrate. So we have so many great places to go. Prospect Park, Central Park, Pelham Bay, but we have Orchard Beach, Coney Island. There are great places people can go to get healthy, enjoy the outdoors, uh, but please do it in a responsible way. Make sure you social distance and you wear a face covering. I should also bring up that I work with a number of nonprofits and what they've done over the last few weeks is, is they've shifted uh, a lot of their cultural and arts programs to virtual programming. I understand Parks has been doing this too. Can you talk a little about Parks at Home and what it offers? Oh, sure. Well, this all started back in March, and we realized that there were some people that were getting a little stir-crazy at home, and some of them are working with the children to learn online, and some of them just could not get out to a park. And so we came up with this Parks at Home series. It's a new web and social media content series to promote mental and physical health. We provide fitness tutorials, activities for kids like coloring books. You have to also check out Parks at Home Junior, it's absolutely adorable. Puzzles, educational programs about wildlife, visual art galleries, music playlists. We have a special Spotify that usually is park themed. And so next week, for example, we have these great things coming up. A live video walk through Francis Lewis Park in Queens. We have Ask a Wildlife Expert series. And we have a live video on reptiles and uh, in the green belt on Staten Island. So we just want to make sure people can still be connected to parks without leaving their home if for some reason they can't do that. It has been phenomenally successful. Uh, I've been asking all my guests this. I just asked uh, Councilman Robert Holden as well. Um, how have you been personally affected by the pandemic? Well, for one, I have a greater appreciation for parks. I think a lot of people took it for granted that while everything is closed, bowling alleys, movie theaters, the one thing that remained open um, are parks. I work in Central Park, so for me to go out there and walk each and every day is something that made me appreciate our parks and public spaces even more. The other thing is I miss my extended family. I'm still coming to work, but when I go home, I see my wife and daughter, I miss my cousins. We're very close. They're here in New York, and not being able to spend time with them for me is very, very painful. 
My sister uh, was tested positive. She's recovered. So that was something I'm very grateful for that she came through it. And then finally, I miss my running community. Uh, I've run two marathons. I'm about to train for my third and not being able to run these amazing New York City races and run and train with my friends. That has probably been the most difficult part of this whole experience. Running alone is not fun. It's something I have to do. Uh, but I know all runners across the city are dealing with the same challenge. So those are the things that have personally affected me. Just It's life-altering. It's a new normal that we have to adjust to. And so I can't wait for a vaccine to be discovered so that we can all get back to somewhat of a new normal here in New York City. So I do want to end on a, I'll call it a bright note, something special that's happening tonight if we look at certain uh, city landmarks. Can you talk a little about that and about the time that people should get ready for this? Well, the time that people should get ready is something magical is going to happen at about 8.12 this evening as the sun sets. We're very pleased that the Empire State Building agreed to glow the top of the Empire State Building green in honor of the amazing, essential, and frontline workers who are taking care of our parks throughout the city and, for that matter, around the world. And not only that, but we're now going to actually have other New York City icons in our parks that will be lit up, the Washington Square Arch, the Arsenal here in Central Park, Renacqua headquarters in the Bronx, and then we also have the steeplechase on Coney Island. They'll all be lit green, and since word got out, they're calling it Going Green for Parks. Our colleagues in San Francisco, Minneapolis, Hawaii, and in fact, even our world urban parks got a hold of it, and now it's gone global. So it's our way of thanking parks for keeping our sanctuaries of sanity open for people to enjoy during these very difficult times. A lot of us are wearing green shirts, going to parks to thank our park workers. They are essential workers. They're very active making sure our mental health, our stress and anxiety are dealt with by making sure our parks are clean, green and remain open. So that's gonna happen tonight. It's gonna light up this New York City skyline. It'll be green and that's to show our respect, our appreciation for the park workers who have been coming to work every day, keeping our parks clean and open. And finally, Commissioner, where can people go to get information on that and about get food and anything else regarding the status of our parks? Sure. For New York City, the general site they can go to is nyc.gov. Specifically for anything related to parks, they can go to nyc.gov backslash parks. Commissioner Mitchell Silver, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. It's my pleasure, Jeff. Jeff. Be safe. Be safe. Thank you. So we've got just about five minutes left. And Reggie, this is my opportunity to interview you. No, I'm kidding. What I'd like to do, though, is say thank you, Reggie, for really, uh, you know, uh, making this as fluid as possible. This is a new world for us. We are learning as we go. And you really have made this a pleasure. And I hope our listeners know that, too, and appreciate how much we're trying to get you um, you know, fresh content interviews with experts, with our policy folks, and also the, just that WBAI wants to provide you with as diverse a, 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 an array of programming uh, that can bring you some joy and bring you some peace and, you know, make you think as often as possible. That's why I always tune in to listen to John Kane right before this show, because I'm hearing a different perspective and it's enjoyable. And actually, I, I adore John. So I want to thank you for tuning into BAI. And I want to also remind you, as, as Reggie has and as John has and a lot of your hosts, that many of us are volunteers and, and we want BAI to succeed. And the way to do that is to keep us on the air for another 60 years. And so if you have a chance, we are in our spring fundraising drive. And as I've said before, we, you know, we were in the, in the beginning stage of our fundraising drive last fall when we were abruptly shut down for a month. And that just hurt our ability to raise the money that would sustain our programming. So we're making an extra effort this spring to ask our listeners, our loyal listeners or our new listeners to just take a few moments if you can and give what you can. And for me, that means I'm a BAI buddy. And being a BAI buddy is I just give a sustaining contribution once a month, comes right onto my credit card. I don't even think about it other than the fact that I know that I'm always supporting BAI. Uh, and the way I do this is it's multiple ways you can actually do it. It's very easy. You can go online. Uh, if you've got a moment, go online. You could do it in the name of this show or any of the shows that you like. 
I'm not territorial. If you like John Kane or you like Reggie's show or you're listening to Consobor Latino, do it in the name of that show. Give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. That's give to WBAI.org. You also can call our call center. And, uh, and I've forgotten the number sometimes in the past, but I write it down. It's a post-it sticker on my wall now. 516-620-3602. I want to give you that number again. That's 516-620-3602. And there's one other easy way that you could do this. Uh, you can text. You can text WBAI to the number 41444. Again, that's texting the name of the station, WBAI, to 41444. And then just you follow the prompts on your smartphones, and it's very easy. You can give $5, $10, $15, $20 a month. Anything you give, even if it's a one-time contribution, is going to help us. It takes a lot to be able to keep us on the air, and that's why we appreciate that you tune into BAI, and we hope that you'll stay with us throughout the days and throughout this entire pandemic. I want to thank today's guests, New York City Council Member Robert Holden, New York City Parks Commissioner Mitchell Silver, who you heard from just a short while ago, and also WBAI correspondent Celeste Katz-Marston, who has been religiously providing these coronavirus diary dispatches by speaking with New Yorkers from all walks of life to illustrate how this pandemic has been affecting them. And again, I do want to give this special shout out to Reggie, who every time I do the show reminds us of why WBAI is important. So Reggie, thank you so much. Usually I say you're in the studio making all things happen, but you know what? I want to thank you for making this transition uh, as uh, flawless and fluid as possible. Tune in to WBAI this Sunday at six o'clock for City Watch. My co-host David Brand will be in the anchor seat for the show and his guests are U.S. Congress member Grace Meng, and one of my neighbors, New York State Senator Jessica Ramos. Remember that Jessica represents this section of Queens that in Elmhurst and Jackson Heights that has been severely impacted by the coronavirus. In fact, uh, Elmhurst and Queens were two of the top 10 neighborhoods with coronavirus cases, uh, according to a chart that I had seen uh, yesterday by this wonderful online outlet, uh, The City. You'll also hear another installment by Celeste Katz-Marston this Sunday. Uh, and if you missed any part of this show, visit us at WBAI.org. Go to Programs and then Archives. The show will be up and running sometime soon. So I want to thank you so much for tuning in today. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health, and I wish you a wonderful Memorial Day weekend. <laughs>